And this week, we're going to start a new series on prayer. The title of it is Prayer Coming Before the Throne. I'm excited about this series. I hope that it's, that it's going to be a practical series for us that will hopefully strengthen our prayer lives and encourage us just to be people of prayer. Um, this, this series will go, we'll probably be in this for the next four or five weeks. It likely will take us into Easter. You know, when it comes to prayer, Martin Luther said that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is direct conversation and communion from us with God. Prayer can be vocal, it can be silent, it can be personal, or it can be corporate. You know, when, when we think about prayer, we shouldn't regard prayer as a duty that we have to do, but rather we should look at it as a, as a privilege to be enjoyed. So we're going to kick off this series this morning in Luke chapter 11. As we kick off this, this series on prayer, I'm actually going to start with perhaps the most well-known prayer uh, in Scripture, which is the Lord's Prayer. So if you have your Bible, just go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 11. The Lord's Prayer is actually introduced to us in Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus is giving his sermon on the mount. So what we're looking at today is, is a second account in Luke chapter 11 that was given of the same prayer as, as we see in Matthew chapter 6. The title for today's message is When You Pray. When You Pray. I've got a lot that I really want to cover and not a whole lot of time to do. And I know you guys want to get out of here and get some food. So if you don't mind, I'm going to jump right into it. So before we start, let's just bow our heads and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day you've given to us. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here and to preach your word. Lord, I thank you for every single person you brought into your house this morning. Lord, I pray that this would be a message for them. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you know what's going on in the hearts and minds and lives of your people. Lord, I pray that today would be an encouragement to them, Lord, that it would be a help to them, that as a result of the word, that they would be uh, just transformed and draw closer to you, Lord. I pray that you would give me, Lord, just clarity of thought and speech and help me to be um, clear in what I say and faithful to your word, Lord. I pray that when we get done with this message, Lord, that, that we uh, know that we should be people of prayer and that we fall even more in love with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse number 1 of Luke chapter 11. The Bible says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place. I want to stop right there before we even actually dive into the actual message. This is, in Luke chapter 11, he that it's speaking of was praying in a certain place is Jesus Christ. So I just want to start this series off by saying, if you ever get to a place where you feel like you don't need to pray, remember that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, had a robust prayer ministry. When we look at scripture and we look at the life of Jesus, we see many times where Jesus would go off by himself to a quiet place and pray to his father. We see at, at Jesus' baptism that he prays, when he calls the disciples, he prays, at Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus prays. And it makes sense when you think about it because Jesus was in heaven at the right hand of the Father and had that intimate, close relationship with him. 
and now on earth, not able to have that, that personal in-person relationship, he was still able to maintain his relationship with his father through prayer. And the thing with us is that we have the exact same direct, on-call access to God. Jesus didn't just have this just because he was the son of God. But when we have been bought with a price, when we have been redeemed, when we have trusted in Christ as Savior, we are brought into the family of God, and we have that exact same access that Jesus had. You know, in theological terms, we call this the priesthood of the believer. And basically, all the priesthood of the believer means is that we don't have to go to a temple or a synagogue in order for God to hear us. Listen, if we want to talk to God, we don't have to go to a man who sits behind a wall and give him our prayers so that he can lift them to God. We don't have to face east when we pray. We don't have to sacrifice. We don't have to do any type of ritual in order for God to hear us. All that we have to do is talk to him. It's that simple. You know, so often we talk about heaven being so far away. But the truth is, for those of us who have a future home there, is that heaven is within speaking distance. While we know the importance of prayer, everybody in here, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not saved, naturally people pray. We know that prayer is important. Yet, even when we know the, prayer, the importance of prayer, often we neglect to pray. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. There's been times and seasons where I find it hard to pray. And there's many reasons why we may neglect to pray. For some of us, we may, you know, it may be because of self-sufficiency. Well, I don't, I don't need God. You know, that's, that's what the heathen says. That's what the person without Christ says, is why would I pray to somebody that I don't need? For some of us, maybe you say, well, God doesn't really care about those things in my life. And then for some of us, I know it's hard to pray because it seems like you've prayed for so long and so often, yet, yet our prayers never seem to be answered. So there's many reasons why we may struggle to pray. But the reason that I want to kind of attack today and look at, which I think is, 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 is a reason that is quite, um, it's, it's one that a lot of people I believe struggle with, is that some of us just don't pray because we feel as if we don't know what to say. You know, how do you go before a holy God and talk to him? What do I say when I'm talking to God? You know, so, so rather than struggle through our prayers, we just decide not to pray at all. Look at the back half of verse 11 with me, uh, or verse 1, I'm sorry, of chapter 11. So we saw that Jesus was in a certain place praying. So the Bible says, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Listen, there's no shame in not knowing how to pray. There's no shame in feeling uncomfortable in your prayers. There's only shame if we don't ask to be taught how to pray, if we don't seek to know how to have conversation with God. And as a result, we spend years of our Christian life with ineffective prayer. F.B. Myers, F. Myers, he's an evangelist of yesteryears. He was friends with D.L. Moody. He said that the greatest tragedy in life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. Listen, if you have trouble praying to God, know that you are not alone. That's the thing I love about Scripture. As we look at Scripture each week, we see that throughout Scripture, the, the people that we lift up, the disciples, Paul, they struggled with the exact same things that we struggled with. And we see in this text that the disciples, 
did not know how to pray. I can imagine that as they're walking with Jesus and as they're living with Jesus, that they're seeing the intimacy that Jesus has in his prayers. You know, the disciples would have had mechanical kind of ritualistic prayers that they may have learned as, as, as Jewish kids. And then there was just something different about the way Jesus prayed. There was something that they wanted. And they went up to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray like that. So as we look at our message today, we're going to look at Luke 11. We're going to just look at verse 2. And we're going to see Jesus begin to teach his disciples how to pray. Like I said earlier, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that many of us probably know. It's a prayer that we've recited. I know when I played football, we used to say it before every single one of our games growing up. And the thing with this prayer, though, is that it can become mechanical for us as well, is that we can say this prayer without truly understanding or knowing what exactly we're even praying for. So my aim today is for us to really dive into this prayer and dissect it and see what exactly are we praying for. You know, the thing is that while this text and while this prayer is often called the Lord's Prayer, a better title for it would really be the Disciples' Prayer. The actual Lord's Prayer, if you, if you want to go read John 17, that was Jesus' prayer. This was Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. In this prayer, we'll see next week that there's a prayer for forgiveness of sins. Well, I got to tell you, Jesus didn't need to pray for forgiveness of sins. So this was actually a better tag than the disciples' prayer, or even better yet, what I like is to tag it as the model prayer. Because Jesus doesn't mean that our prayer should be limited to the exact words that we see in Matthew 6. In Luke chapter 11. But basically what Jesus is doing is that he's, he's, he's showing us that these are the kind of priorities that our prayers should be shaped by. Jesus is giving us a template on how to pray. So as we look at verse 2 today and as we look next week at the rest of this passage, there's one main idea I want us to get from it. The one main idea that Jesus shows his disciples is that the ultimate priority of our prayers should be the glorification of God. Luke chapter 11, I'm actually, I'm going to read, I'm going to start from the top again. I'm just going to read straight through verse 1 through 4. Like I said, we'll look at the back half next week, but I want to read it all together since it does go together. Verse number 1, just starting from the top again. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first thing I want us to notice is how Jesus um, teaches his disciples to begin their prayer. Our Father in heaven. Listen, Jesus begins his prayer by establishing who God is. Listen, if God was only an unknown force or a nameless being, prayer becomes irrational. If God is impersonal, powerless deity, who just kind of lets whatever happens on earth happen, there would be no reason for us to bring our problems and cry out to him. But as we see in this first section of verse 2, 
God is personal. He is ours. It says our Father. He's our God. And just as he's personal, he wants a personal relationship with each and every one of us. Not only is he personal, but he is paternal. He is our Father. We saw the last couple of weeks as we looked at the story of the prodigal son that the father and the prodigal son was a, was a metaphor of, of God the Father. And we saw that the father is a compassionate, loving, forgiving father. Because he's our father, we look up to him in love and faith as one who is near and cares about us. He's a father that cares, a father that loves. And then even more, he's our father who is in heaven. He's not just a father. He's a heavenly father. He's an all-powerful, all-knowing, always present father. Listen, he's a father that knows what you need even before you ask him for it. Our prayers should begin with adoration for God. We should praise God and thank him for who he is before we even start to pray. You know, I start our prayer, Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy, Lord. I thank you for your grace for my salvation, Lord. I thank you that you are a God who forgives, that you are a God who heals, a God who provides. Begin with all of God's holiness, of all of his splendor, his power, and his majesty. And you look at Psalms 104. The Bible tells us to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. The Bible tells us to do that. Enter with thanksgiving and praise. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, you are good. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Listen, if we want our prayers to enable and empower us to glorify God, we've got to begin with glorifying him ourselves. As we read through the Lord's Prayer through verse 2 through 4, you can divide this prayer into two separate sections, which is what we'll do. But both sections serve the same purpose, which is the glorification of God. Within these two sections, there's six petitions, or there's, there's six things that we are asking God to do. In the first section, we will see that the petitions are for, it's a plea for God to be glorified globally. And in the second half, the petitions are a plea for God to be glorified personally in us. So as we look at this first section here today, I want us to see Three ways our prayer should aim to glorify God globally. Look with me at this, at this first petition that we have. Hallowed be your name. The word hollow is not a word that we see very often in Scripture. And as a matter of fact, this in the Lord's Prayer may be the only time that you can think of that you even see this word. It's definitely not a word that we use today. Actually, I was watching a, a Facebook um, reel or video, and there was a mom that was talking to her daughter. And the mom says, what's God's name? And the daughter looks at her and says, Howard. Mom says, what? How, how do you know God's name is Howard? And the little girl looks at her and says, our father who are in heaven, Howard be your name. So, <laughs> so God's name is not Howard. So I thought it was kind of funny, though. His name, we're not saying that hallowed is God's name either when we, when we say this prayer. But rather, hallowed means to make or regard as holy. Growing up, when I would hear or read the Lord's Prayer, I thought that hallowed be your name was a continuation of the praise 
that we saw that we see in our Father who are, who is in heaven. I thought that we I thought that essentially what we were saying is, Lord, your name is holy. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, your name is holy. I thought it was just us continuing to praise Him for who He is. But as I've studied this week, what I've learned is that this phrase is not a confession of us saying, Lord, your name is holy, but rather it is a command. And as a matter of fact, as we look at all of these petitions the next few weeks, they're all commands that we make to God. Not in the way that we're telling God what to do, but in the way that we are praying for him to do so. So rather than saying, Lord, your name is holy, what we are saying when we say, hallowed be your name, is Lord, let your name be holy. Let your name be holy. Hallowed means to regard as holy, to esteem as holy, to cherish, to love, to treasure as holy. This is a prayer for our deepest heart's response. A prayer that unworthy conceptions of God and of his character may no longer prevail among men. In Isaiah 52, 5, God says, My name is blasphemed continually every day. So what we're praying is that rather than God's name being blasphemed, that God's name would be esteemed and treasured and loved and lifted up as holy in the world. Jesus isn't telling us to pray for a change in God. We're not, we're not praying that God would become more holy. God is holy. But rather we are praying for a change in us. Jesus teaches us to pray for a world where people know, love, and treasure God more than life itself. Hallowed be your name. So then the next petition we see is for God's kingdom to come. In Matthew, Jesus mentions the kingdom 49 times. As you read through, as you read through the Bible, the kingdom is often called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord, or the kingdom of heaven. But they're all speaking of the same kingdom. Jesus said that he came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So the question then is, if we're going to pray for God's kingdom to come, remember the purpose of this is so that, so that we actually know what we're praying for. We don't want to just repeat these phrases. We don't just want to say, hallowed be your name, and have no idea what we're saying. I, I want us to be able to, now when we pray, we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, let people esteem and treasure and love you as holy. So in the same thing as we come to your kingdom come, what exactly are we praying for? So the first question we have to answer is, what exactly is the kingdom of God? And this, without having a whole entire sermon in and of itself at the most basic of levels, the kingdom of God is both then and now. The kingdom of God is a future reality to be hoped for. Luke 19, 11 and Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 tell us of that future reality. There's a day when Christ will return and he will rule and reign over all of his creation as king. That is the future coming kingdom of God. So to pray for his kingdom to come means that we are to pray, come Lord Jesus. We are to pray for the Lord to return, to resurrect the dead, to bring in an eternity where sickness and death are no more. And all that there is is love and joy in Christ. But not only is God's kingdom coming a future reality, it is also a present reality to be experienced right now. Luke 17, 20, 21, and Mark 1, 14 through 15 speak of that present reality of the kingdom. In Luke 17, the Bible says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So when we pray for the kingdom of God here and now, there is a prayerful desire of Christ's servants to see God's kingdom broaden and become increasingly established throughout the world in the here and now. So when we say, Lord, your kingdom come, what we are praying for is a world full of redeemed, born-again Christians. We're praying that the gospel would be shared, the gospel would be spread among the nations, and that God's kingdom would be established in the here and now through people calling upon his name and becoming a part of his family. So Jesus teaches us to pray for a kingdom to be established where all evil is banished, and the only thing left is holy, sanctified people who perfectly honor and glorify the Father. Your kingdom come. The last petition we look well, that, that, that we see in this verse is a plea for God's will to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Once again, without this could be a whole entire sermon series really on God's will. Without going too deep into God's will, at the most basic of, of what this is saying is that it's a plea that takes the focus off of us and puts the focus onto God. Most often when we pray, we tend to ask God for our desires, for our wants, for our needs of our hearts. And there's nothing wrong with this. God wants us to come to him with our wants, desires, and needs. Remember, he is a heavenly father, right? So I know with my son, I want my son, and my son has needs and wants that he knows that only I can accomplish that I can take care of. I want my son to come and say, Daddy, can you do this for me? Daddy, can you help me? And God is the exact same way. He wants us to bring our, our needs and wants and desires to him. But there are times, as Jesus shows us, where he also wants us to realign our hearts with his desires and his wants and his needs and for us to pray and long for the things and the will of God. Praying God's will is being honest with him about what we want in prayer, but also surrendering our lives and the outcome of our prayers to him. It's wanting our lives to align with God's will more than our will. If you look at Luke twenty two forty two, this is Jesus. Jesus, as he's about to be crucified, prays, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Jesus' desire is to not have to go through the crucifixion. He tells God that. He says, Lord, please take this cup away from me. He goes, he says, that is my desire, that is my want. But then listen to how he finishes it. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus brings his wants and his desires to God, but he says, Lord, this is what I'm asking, Lord, but if you have something else for me, I surrender to your will in my life. So that is what we pray when we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not asking God to do our will, but it's asking God to do his will and help us to do it. Jesus teaches us to pray for a world where the wants and desires of God have preeminence, where God's wants and desires surpass all others. But as we look at the Lord's Prayer, I also want us to recognize that the Lord's Prayer it's not just a prayer for us to repeat and say, 
But it's a vision for life in Christ's kingdom. It's a kingdom where God is put in his rightful place, where evil is banished, and where his will is perfectly executed. The Lord's Prayer is not meant for us to pray it, but it's meant for us to live it out. If we pray the prayer honestly, we'll be moved to embrace childlike dependence, wholehearted worship, and participation in God's mission. Remember, this is a global prayer. It's a prayer for the world. But remember, we are a part of the world. So it's a prayer for us personally as well. So now I want to answer the question, how do I live out this prayer in my own life? What does this look like practically applied to my life? I know what I'm supposed to be praying for. I know that I should be praying for God to be glorified through everything. So how do I glorify God? First thing, we glorify God by hollowing his name. So we esteem, we love, we treasure, we, we lift the name of God above all other things this world has to offer. We should be praying that God should be our ultimate satisfaction, that all of our, all of our, our purpose and, and our fulfillment in life is found in his glorification. We hallow God's name by centering our lives on Jesus and his eternal kingdom, by rejecting to live for the praise that comes from others. He is the one that should be on the throne of our hearts. Listen, we give the entirety of our being to God and discover the true joy and peace that comes through total submission to him. We glorify God by helping to establish his kingdom. I think that this is pretty self-explanatory. How do we do that? How do we help establish the kingdom of God? Praying thy kingdom come means that we're asking the heavenly father to help us in our own lives, to be faithful, to be obedient, to be true and effective Christians. So we've got to be part of the kingdom of God. We've got to strive to be a, a Christian that when people see us, that our, our, our walk talks more than our talk talks. But then not only that, recognize that the kingdom of God is established through souls being saved. So there should be an evangelistic fervor within us. So when we pray to God, Lord, your kingdom come. Part of that prayer should be, dear Lord, please open the hearts of my loved ones. Open the hearts of my friends, of my neighbors, of my co-workers to receive your gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. God's kingdom will expand as more people turn to Christ for salvation. They enter the kingdom when they come to know the crucified king. People need the gospel. Your kingdom come, Lord. Let your kingdom come through me. Let your kingdom come through my actions and let your kingdom come through my words. E.M. Bounds, and for any of you that are, that are readers in here, I would highly recommend you to read E.M. Bounds on prayer. He is amazing when it comes to prayer. He has a lot of books, but E.M. Bounds says, part of the blame lies at our door. If we do our part, God will do his Around us is a world lost in sin. Above us is a God willing and able to save. It is ours to build the bridge that links heaven and earth. And prayer is the mighty instrument that does the work. So I will glorify God 
by, by um, excuse me, I will glorify God by helping to establish his kingdom. And then I will glorify God by following his will for my life. God's will for our life is revealed to us in his word. There, once again, there is a lot that we can go into about God's will for our life. But I believe that this is mostly just a prayer that our focus would be on what God wants for our life and not what we want, that our desires would be God's desires. I truly believe Psalms 37.4. In Psalms 37.4, the Bible says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And what I believe that is saying, I don't believe it's, I believe what that is saying is that as you draw closer to God, as you delight yourself in the world, your desires become his desires. Not that his desires become ours, but you long for the things that he wants for you. Prayer is not a means of getting what we want from God, but it's aligning our will with his. Notice the word done. Your will be done. In order to accomplish God's will, we must come to actual works of faith and labors of love. Obviously, I believe that at the heart of God's will being done is Christ-like living and the spreading of the gospel. If you go out there in um, the foyer by the gym, we have a sign that says our mission. And it says our mission is to glorify God by fulfilling the great commission in the spirit of the new commandment. So if you were to ask me, what is God's will? I bet that right there, I believe, could be a perfect answer for what God's will is. Our God's will is that we would glorify him by the fulfillment of the great commission, by sharing Christ with others. And the spirit of the new commandment, the new commandment is to love God and love others. I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, Thy will be done on earth as I hope to do it in the skies. May I begin here a life worthy to be continued in eternity. Think about that just for a second. That God's will is being done in heaven. It says, Your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. So we should strive that when we get to heaven, nothing changes. That when we get to heaven, that we are continually doing the will of God. We should start here doing the will of God. So as we pray, glorify God in your prayers. Speak to God as a father that gently loves and cares for you. Ask for your needs and wants. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. He's a good father, but also make sure that you pray that he is glorified and known in the world. You want to know whether or not you're praying like Jesus? At the end of each week, do a prayer audit and ask yourself, if God answered all of my prayers this week, how would it affect the world? If God answered my prayers, how many relationships would be brought back together. If God answered all of my prayers, how many people would be healed? If God answered all of my prayers this week, how many people would come to a saving knowledge of him? Glorify God both in word and in deed, and then live a life that glorifies him. Therefore, I glorify God by putting him above all of my life, by sharing the gospel with others, and following his will for my life. 
Before we close, there's just two more things I'd like to point out quickly. One is bad news and one is good news. The bad news, look with me at verse, uh, verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus says to pray, Our Father. Listen to me, if you don't know God as Father, this prayer is not for you. If you don't know God as Father, you don't have somebody in heaven that you can run to that, that loves you, that brings forgiveness, that embraces you. Jesus tells us, if you look in Matthew 6, before he gives the uh, Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, he tells us that for those of us who don't know God as Father, our prayers are hypocritical and vain, that our prayers do not accomplish anything. This is a prayer for those who have been redeemed and bought with a price. This is a prayer for those who are in Christ. In John 8, 42, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and he says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Jesus tells the, the Pharisees that if God was truly your father, you would know who I am. You would accept who I am. You would call upon me, because that is the only way that you can come into the family of God, that you can be a, a partaker of what he has for you. Listen, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you don't have a Heavenly Father that embraces, loves, and forgives you. And that is terrible, terrible, terrible bad news. But there's also good news. We talked about God's will. And God's ultimate will is that all would be saved. God's will is that you would be a part of his family. It's that you would come into a right relationship with him. So you can have access to an all-powerful, all-knowing father. You can have access to a father who cares and loves and restores. But first, you've got to believe in and call upon the name of his son. And if you've never done that, I want to exhort you to handle that right here and right now, you know, the Bible says that right now is the time of salvation. Don't wait. Never know what's going to happen when you leave out of these doors. We've seen the last couple of weeks that you have a Savior that seeks you. You have a Savior that wants you to come into a right relationship with him. He's calling on you. He's, he's drawing you towards him. Don't ignore his call. And for those of us here that do have a Heavenly Father, I pray that as we talk to him this week, that we would pray that he would be put in his rightful place in the world and in our hearts. That we would pray that his kingdom would be established in the world and in our lives. And that we would pray that his will would be done, both globally and personally. Every head bow, eyes closed.